All right. Good morning. Here we go. Here we go, church. Grab your seats. Continuing our series of the book of John. We're in John chapter 6 this morning. We were in John 6 last week, and uh, we're going to do a second sermon because there's a lot going on in there. So grab your Bibles, turn them to John chapter 6. I can remember almost as plain as day. I was probably 10 to 12 years old, somewhere in that range. Uh, we're in the backyard. It's nighttime. We had a, had a cookout and there were friends over. And um, one of my favorite things about cookouts is, you know, after all the food has been eaten and you're kind of sitting around the fire out there and, and just having good conversation and just talking. And, I, and I'm, I'm 10, 11 years old and, and I remember that kind of happening. And my, my dad and, and one of his friends are there and they're talking about all kinds of fascinating things. And I'm just here soaking it in and listening and like, Wow, and I'm getting to sit here with the big guys and listen and hear this. And I remember, and I don't remember who brought it up, but I remember the question being asked, hey, so what do you think? Can you lose your salvation? I remember going, I didn't even know this was a question. And I remember them talking about it and talking through it. And I never considered that before. Was my salvation something that I could lose? And if so, how would I lose it? And it really caused a storm of panic in me. And that would last for years. Uh, a frenzy of doubt and um, fear and insecurity and, un, un, and just concern. I wanted to believe that salvation once received could never be lost, but I, I wasn't sure. I had no idea. I didn't know. I was 11 years old. How could I know? And it caused this fear in me. And I ended up just kind of putting my head in the sand and kind of ignoring the issue because it was easier to not think about it. But then over the years, with every failure, with every sin, with every time I doubted, with every mistake, came back this idea of, oh, Maybe now I've sinned too much and I'll lose my salvation. Maybe now I've committed the same sin too many times and God's going to give up on me. Maybe now I've gone too far and I'd always be afraid. You see, it's a terrifying question to ask, and, but it's an incredibly important question. It's a pressing question and a question that is going to take us to the heart of the gospel and honestly, since I've been in ministry, this is probably the number one question that I'm always asked more than any other. That was me. That was weird. Oh, good. So this terrifying question, let's seek to answer it this morning. Our text is John chapter 6, starting in verse 35. The words of our God, written by the Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, say this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. So last week we saw Jesus do another miracle. He took bread and fish and he multiplied it and he fed 5,000, which we looked at and saw that was actually probably more to 20, 25, 30,000 people because they would have only counted the men. And so Jesus feeds this huge crowd of people, but he exposes the real issue. He says, listen, the problem that you have wasn't that your bellies were empty and needed to be filled. The problem is that your heart was empty and needed to be filled. And the bread was but a picture of the true bread that you need to eat. You need to eat me, right? Um, and, and then he tells them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part with me. And it freaks them out and they all leave. The, all these crowds, these multitudes of people who were excited about Jesus, who were interested in Jesus, intrigued by Jesus, all leave and walk away. And then Jesus turns to his disciples, the 12, and he says, do you want to leave too? And they say to him, where else would we go? For you have the words of life. See, we see that not everyone who is around Jesus, who is excited about Jesus, is a genuine follower. And we saw a, couple, you know, a little while back in John 3 that to be a true follower of Jesus, it's not about agreeing with him or liking him or being excited about him, but it's about being born again. It's about having new birth, supernatural new birth. He must be spiritually alive. And this chapter in 6 tells us a lot more about the nature of salvation as we look deeper into this chapter, I believe it will help us to answer the question, salvation once obtained, can it be lost? Can we lose our salvation? Verse 35 said, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever, thir- whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever comes will not be hungry. Whoever believes shall never thirst. You see, right out of the gate, uh, we need to understand something. See, the call of salvation, the the call to be rescued from judgment, the call to be rescued from hell, from the wrath of God, the call to have eternal life, the call to have your deepest longings satisfied, your soul quenched, to be redeemed, made new, all that, the call to have that goes out to everyone. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, if you're black, if you're white, if you're popular or if you're nerdy. It doesn't matter if you're good or you're bad. God is calling you to be saved. And he has put the ball into your court. He has mailed you, so to speak, the invitation to the feast. Ask you to come feast on him and be saved. You know, it's the reason we sit, like this belief that the call of the gospel goes to all men is the particular reason we send 500 Operation Christmas Child boxes around the world. It's the reason we sent a team to Africa this year. It's a reason we sent a team to Marion, Ohio this year. It's a reason we're partnering with Canada to reach the most diverse lost city in the world, Toronto. It's the reason we do children's ministry. It is the reason we do youth ministry. It's the reason we spend money, spend time, and effort because we believe that the call of the gospel goes to our children and goes to those around the world and God is calling them to believe and to be saved. 
It is the reason God placed this church here on 22 and 3, so that we might be a light in the darkness to push back darkness, so that we might spread the good news of Jesus with the world and with our community and see it changed. You see, you are not, this salvation is not yours. You are not saved because your parents are saved. You are not saved because your family comes from a Christian family. You're not saved because you come to church. You're not saved because you are a good person. But rather, salvation is this choice that comes to every one of us. To some of us, it came to us when we were really, really young. To others of us, it came when maybe we were a lot older. But it is a choice that we must all face. Will I bow my knees to Jesus as Lord and come to know him Humbly confess my sin and trust his sacrifice. Will I receive this salvation? The call comes to us, but we must decide. But right out of the gate, he is telling us that, listen, here is Jesus standing here with arms open saying, come all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And so it is this invitation to all men, but here is a problem. You see, the problem is you have this almighty God offering this salvation to everyone. He's paid for it, like it's free. He's paid for it through his blood, through his son. He's made a way. It's completely free for you. It will heal you. It will make you new. You'll have everlasting life. Like, like who doesn't want that, right? Like, when you say it's going to save you from hell, you're going to have eternity and, and an amazing life, like, all of it's good. Why wouldn't you want it? But to come to Jesus... To receive this salvation comes with acknowledging that you are not Lord, but Jesus is Lord. It comes with a confession that you are broken and that you are the biggest problem in your life and that you have failed and that you need someone else to forgive you and someone else to be your Lord. But does that not seem like a small price to pay for eternal life? And submitting to the lordship of someone who cares for you and who is defined literally by the standard of goodness and love. And if you get to submit to that guy's lordship, that seems like an easy thing to do, right? But here's the problem. Sin has so marred and broken us that we love darkness and we don't want to come to the light Instead, we love our sin and we love the things of the world. And so the natural posture of our hearts is not curiosity to Jesus. It's not curiosity toward Jesus. The posture of our hearts is not intrigue about Jesus. The posture of our hearts is not, I'm open to considering that. The natural state of the human heart is one of rejection and rebellion against God. Read in the Psalms this week and on a Wednesday night class about how David said that he was born in iniquity. He was born and conceived in sin. We were born into this world broken like the world is broken. And it is the natural posture of our heart to love the things of the world and hate the things of God. We are born into this world natural rebels. And so here's this big crowd, like all these people who, who saw Jesus heal people, who saw Jesus turn uh, the water into wine, who saw Jesus take all the, these few loaves and fish and, and feed thousands of people. And this big crowd who's excited about Jesus, who was excited to go see him, we see that they only want Jesus on their terms, and you can't have Jesus on your own terms. 
And so verse 6 tells us that Jesus says to the crowd, he looks at all these people and he says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So here's all these crowds of people. They've seen Jesus do all these impossible things. They see him speak with authority and speak the truth and yet they don't believe it. Because the natural position, the natural posture of their heart is one of rebellion against the things of God and a love for the things of the world. They love themselves and they want Jesus to, to, to do the things they want them to do, not what he wants. The natural state of every human heart is one of rebellion against the things of God. We looked this week too at Luke 16, fascinating passage about Jesus is making one simple point. People, if they do not believe the scriptures, even if someone raises from the dead, they won't believe. Because the state of all of our hearts is natural rebellion against God. So Jesus freely offers this salvation to everyone. He says, come, eat the bread of life, come and live. And yet the crowds look at him and walk away. It's kind of reminded me uh, this week of a couple weeks ago. Um, I have four kids. The second one is named Scarlett, and um, she really takes after me because she doesn't like anything. She doesn't eat anything. She doesn't like food. Um, she likes food, but she likes like four things. You know, um, mac and cheese, but it's got to be the right noodles. Chicken, but it can only be from like Chick Fil A or like the gross kind you put in the microwave. And, and, and we're trying so hard to get her to just eat anything that's kind of remotely healthy. And I remember uh, at dinner one night, we are sitting there, and, and she wouldn't eat. I think it was chicken. It's like, you like chicken. Why won't you eat the chicken? And, and so, you know, I start getting over there, and, and, and like, okay, cut it in half. It's this big. Just put it in your mouth. And she, like, you know, takes, like, the smallest, like, little. And it's like, you can't even taste that. Just put it in your mouth. You like chicken, it'll be good. And they're like, okay, we'll cut it in half again. It's like, take it. Okay, if you eat this, we can have our cook it. If you eat this, you can have, you start bribing them, right? If you, if you eat this, you can you can have this. If you eat this, we'll watch a show. Whatever show you want to watch. You know, and then when that start doesn't work, you start threatening. If you do not eat this piece of chicken that's this big right now, you will not walk for a week. I don't beat my children, okay? And you start threatening, if you don't do this, we won't watch TV for a week. You know, you do all these things just to eat the chicken. And you get so mad, and she's crying. And, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is not that big of a deal. Just eat the chicken. And you, know, and you know it's good for them. It tastes good. She would like it. But no matter what I do, I even tried one time to put it on a spoon and, go, and throw it in her mouth. She quickly threw it out. And so we can't shove it down her throat. You can't bribe her. You can't manipulate her. You can't hurt her enough. You see, no matter how much we beg or promise or manipulate or threaten or try to convince people that Jesus is the only way to salvation and will change their life forever and give them new life, no matter how much we try to shove the truth down their throat, they will not, we can't make them believe. You see, we all have people in our lives, right? We've got family, we've got friends that we want them to believe the truth of the gospel. And, and, and we want desperately for them to believe, but we've tried sharing, we've tried shoving it down, we've tried arguing with them. 
We tried just living good in front. We tried everything, but no matter what we do, it seems like nothing works. We want to shove it down their throat, but we do not have the power to change the human heart. And the human heart has a posture from birth of one of rebellion against the things of God and love for the things of the world. And no matter how much we want to slap someone upside the head or shove the truth down their throat, we can't change them. But God can. Verse 44 says, no one can come to me. Jesus says to the crowds, you don't believe, but no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise him up on the last day. See, Jesus tells us about the state of the human heart. He's been doing this for six chapters. He's told us that men love the darkness and don't come to the light. He's shown us how the masses come to him but don't truly believe. And the truth is that everyone is broken. And the only hope that you and I and our friends and our loved ones have for salvation is a supernatural work of God. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see, the, here's the problem. The problem is, is we misunderstand the nature of salvation. You see, oftentimes we think this is what it is, that we have fallen overboard on the boat and we're in the water and can't swim and we're kicking and thrashing and trying to stay afloat and, and God throws uh, Jesus out on, a, on, a, on a, a life raft and Jesus has his hand out on the life raft and we're kicking and thrashing and trying to swim and, and, and he's holding his hand out and all we gotta do is grab his hand and he'll pull us on the boat. But that's not what salvation is. You see, salvation is we have fallen off the boat, but we sank to the bottom of the water, of the ocean. And now our lifeless body lies dead at the bottom. And Jesus swims down to the bottom, grabs our lifeless body, pulls it to the top, and breathes new life into us and causes us to live. You see, that's salvation. The Bible says again and again that salvation is of the Lord. And one of the things you guys have heard me say is that there is no such thing as a boring testimony. No such thing as a boring testimony. Sometimes we think, oh, you know what? So-and-so told their testimony, and they talked about how they were at the, at the end of themselves, and they were in, in jail, and they were strung out on drugs and this and that, and, and, and they were just at the end of themselves, and just, bam, God just came through and saved them and changed their life, and he does that, and awesome. But other times, people talk about, hey, you know what? I've been in church my whole life. I've been to every VBS known to man. I can tell you about Rickshaw Rally, and I can tell you about, you know, all this. You say yes to VBS. I can, I've been to all of them, and I can tell you I got saved when I was like four and a half years old I don't really remember it but I've been changed ever since and both of them are miraculous works of God by the spirit because to save the one in jail takes the same power to save the little four-year-old in VBS because the posture of both of their hearts is one of rebellion against the things of God and love for things of the world and we need a supernatural work of God to save us he's got to swim to the bottom of the water and pull us up and breathe new life into us you see it is more like the story of Jonah. That God says, go this way, and we go this way. We're running from the things of God toward the things of the world, and God, in his relentless love and pursuit of us, says, no, 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 I'm gonna let you run for a little bit, but eventually I'm gonna get you, and even if it takes a whale, I will bring you back inside of it. Or he's like the shepherd who would leave the 99 sheep to go after the one dumb sheep that ran off. 
And he throws us on his back and brings us back. You see, if you are a child of God, it is because God set his affection and his sight on you. And even though you run and your heart was rebellious against him, he drew you, like verse 44 says. He came again and again. And for some of you really hard-headed people, he came again and again and again. But it might have taken some years, but eventually he breaks through your heart. He draws you, takes your heart of stone and breaks it to pieces, makes it soft and draws you to himself and saves you. And I thank and praise God that he never gave up on me because had he, I would have never come. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers in the 1800s, the first megachurch pastor, if you will, the, the, I mean, just the guy with the, the golden tongue, uh, was, was training young preachers because everyone wanted to learn from Charles Spurgeon because he was, he was the guy. And so what he did was he would take all these young preachers and he would take them out to the graveyard and put them all out there in front of the headstones and he'd tell them to preach and they didn't understand what, that, what was going on but he'd tell them to preach and, and he said he wanted to make a point very clear that it doesn't matter how good your illustrations are or how good your turns of phrases are. It doesn't matter how good of a speaker you are because the same power that would cause these dead bodies to come up out of the ground is the same power that would cause a sinner to repent and believe. And if you think your words can pull dead men from the ground, then you are fooling yourself because God uses the foolishness of your silly preaching to save men. You see... It is the reason that there is no amount of arguing with someone that's going to change their heart. It don't matter how many times you tell them and prove to them that evolution ain't real. It ain't going to change their heart. It doesn't matter how many times you use apologetics and, and plead and beg. It doesn't matter how many times you drag them to church. You cannot change their hearts, but God can like on the road to Damascus when there was this man who was going around and, and, and killing Christians, who was stoning, I'm just looking for Christians because he hated them and he hated what they stood for, looking to, to find them and stone them and humiliate them. And he hated Jesus and all he stood for, but then on the road to Damascus, God showed up and he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in a moment, that man's heart and heart was softened and he believed. You see, God can take the hardest of hearts and change them in an instant. We cannot do it, but through the power of the gospel and the spirit, God can. Salvation is a miraculous work of God. Sometimes people argue about whether or not God does miracles anymore, and that's a debate for another day. But every single time, Someone bows their knees and proclaims Jesus as Lord. It is a miracle. Because God took our hearts of stone and crushed them and made them hearts of flesh so that we would believe. So let's answer our question. God calls everyone to salvation and yet we resist it because our hearts are hard and he miraculously saves us. But the question is, after he miraculously saves us, can we lose this gift of salvation he's given? Can we lose our salvation? Notice verse 37. All that the Father, y'all know what that word all means? It means everybody. In the Greek, it means everybody. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So he says, everyone the Father gives him will come. 
They're going to come. I'm going to give them to you. They're going to come to me. They're going to believe. They're going to be saved. But what does he do with those people who come and believe? He will never cast you out. But you might say to me, well, Brent, if I, if I you know, really struggle with this particular sin and I struggle with it for 50 years and I, come, I fall again and again and again and I fall again and again, I think, I feel like God's going to give up on me. I feel like he's going to, you know, he can't, his, he can't keep forgiving me for the same thing over and over again. But my Bible says he will never cast you out. Meaning, when you screw up tomorrow, he isn't casting you out. Meaning, when you doubt him, he's not casting you out. He will never cast you out. There are no exceptions. If you are genuinely his, you are his forever. His blood washes away every sin in your past, in your present, in your future. The things you haven't even thought to screw up yet, he's already forgiven you for. And in verse 39, he says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You see, it is God's will that Jesus never lose you. Sometimes we wonder, we wander away from God, we, 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 we run away from him, and sometimes that, oh, that old man in us, the sinful nature in us wins, and we feel like we're like Jonah, and we're running away from God, and he's going to give up on us. But it's more like this. It's more like Jesus who leaves the 99 sheep to come after the one, he gets you and he brings you back, he puts you in a pasture that's got a fence in it, and you might run a little bit, you might doubt, you might run away, but there's a big fence there stopping you from going too far. I don't know if you ever met a sheep before, but they ain't jumping no fence. See, Jesus, before this, modeled this truth for us. When he fed the 5,000, he feeds all these people, multiplies the loaves, multiplies the fish, feeds all these people, and he tells the disciples to go gather every, all of it that's left over and put it in baskets. And he says, so that nothing may be lost. You see, if Jesus cares for not wasting and losing the bread he just made out of nothing, and he's, if he is careful and meticulous to, to keep it, how much more meticulous and care will he take to keep you? Can you lose your salvation? You see, that's actually the wrong question. That's the question you and I always ask. We always ask, can I lose my salvation? But it's the wrong question. The question is not, can I lose my salvation? We always think that, because, and the reason we think that is because we think we contribute far more than we do to our salvation. We think, can I lose my salvation? Because in our minds, we think we did a lot to get it. And so because we did a lot to get it, we think we could do a lot to lose it. But salvation was never something you or I earned at all. It was a gift freely given. It was a supernatural miracle of God's grace thrust into your life. It was faith as a gift to you. And if that is the case, there is nothing you or I can do to screw it up. If we didn't earn it through our own effort, we can't lose it through our own failure. You see, it's the wrong question. 
can I lose my salvation, is the wrong question. The question is not, can I lose my salvation? The question is, will Jesus ever lose me? And the answer is a resounding no. The question is not, can I lose my salvation? The question is, will Jesus lose me? And he won't. Three times he repeats this phrase, but I will raise them up on the last day. See, on the last day, at the end of the world, it will not be you who raises yourself up, but the Lord who raises you from the dead. And as Philippians 1, 6 says, the God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Not the God who began a good work hopefully might maybe bring it to completion, but the God who began it will bring it to completion. You see, salvation from beginning to end is a work of God. Salvation from beginning to end is a miraculous work of God. We don't get any credit for it, and that is exactly the way we should want it. Because if our salvation was in our hands, we would screw it up. But Jesus saved us, and he will never lose us, and he will keep us to the very end. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I would lose no one. Thanks be to God that salvation from beginning to end is a miraculous work of God. And so we can rest easy. Jesus told us in this passage that he was the bread of life. And later, he's, he's going to give us a practice a ritual to continue to do, and it is to take a meal together, a meal together that will serve as a reminder, a reminder that we belong to him, that he earned our salvation, and that, and that one day we will have a feast with him in his kingdom, and that he is securing you and keeping you until that day. And so as we feast on this meal together, let it serve as a reminder that until that day when we get to eat with him again, we are safe in his arms. It is a meal of remembrance. If you are not a follower of Jesus this morning, this meal that we're about to take is not for you. Because as it stands right now, you will not be with us in that feast that is to come. As it stands right now, you are not his child. You have not eaten of the bread of life. You have not feasted on him. You don't know what it means to have new life, and you will not be in that kingdom eating with us. But he stands today offering to you, offering you a chance to come, to come and eat and feast and believe. And so while we pass out this meal in a minute, I'm going to stand over here, and if that's you, You've been religious, you've believed in God, but you realize that that's not enough. I've not known Jesus as Lord. Come, let me show you how he can save you. Basically, you just receive it. Parents, if you have children with you this morning, do not let your unbelieving children take this meal. Instead, use this time as an opportunity to teach them about the gospel and why it is you get to take it and they don't. Believers, Eat this meal, remove your fear, remove your doubts. Run to the Lord. Rest in the finished work of Christ. Rest in that God's grace is bigger than your failure. Rest in the fact that salvation from beginning to end is a miraculous work of God. Rest in that. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your grace this morning. 
as we take this meal together, Lord, let it be a reminder to us, a reminder that your body was broken and your blood was poured out so that one day we would feast with you in your kingdom, that we would be with you forever, that we would be made new and with you forever. God, help us to rest this morning, to be comforted to know that salvation from beginning to end is a miraculous work of God. And so we can rest easy. We can know that we are safe and secure. On our worst days, when we screw it up, when we mess up, when we doubt, we are safe and secure because you have us in your hands and you won't lose any of us. Salvation was something you did, not us. And so we can't mess it up. We thank you and we love you. If there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, I pray you give them the courage to come and, to come and be made new. God, we love you. In Christ's name we pray. All those people said.